Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. Between a full-time job in IT and a full-time job in podcasting, it gets harder and harder to sit down and read the books I'm interested in. This is where Audible comes in. I can listen on my daily commute, relaxing, or while out running errands and still get in the books I've been wanting to get into. You can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. Now you can try Audible risk-free with a special 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash nerdery and murdery. That's audibletrial.com forward slash nerdery and murdery. Don't let your busy life get in the way of that great book you've been wanting to read. Go get your free trial of Audible today. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. This is Jeffrey, and we've talked about many times before that I experience problems and struggles with my mental health. And really, without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy does work. It's helped for me. But but what is is therapy exactly? It's it's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships at work or you're not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's really time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles. And, and it's time to start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And there's a special offer to Nerdery and Murdery listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash nerderyandmurdery. That's betterhelp.com forward slash nerderyandmurdery. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. The defining feature of your podcast is my need to climb through the phone to tell you how wrong you are. Welcome to episode 37 of Nerdery and Murdery. I really don't like you. <laughs> uh, this episode comes out on February 13th, my little brother's birthday. So happy birthday, Kyle. Happy birthday, Kyle. We love you. I don't know if he listens. <laughs> he, he's awfully he's awfully Kyle. busy with three kids, so yeah. <laughs> I have no idea if he listens or not. So, um, yeah, so welcome to another episode, and... Um, I'm Zig with your nerdery. And I'm Jeffrey with your murdery. Almost forget that uh, multiple <laughs> times. 
So we're ready to kick into high gear and uh, get on top of a new nerdery subject. Yes. Which I know I know nothing about. Yeah, you do. Probably not. I got some stuff to list off I bet you've heard of. Doubtful. House of Gains? No. Homicide? No. Spanish Prisoner? No. Heist? No. The Postman Always Rings Twice? No, I've never seen it. The Verdict? No. The Untouchables? Yes. Hoffa? No. Wag the Dog? No. Hannibal? Yes. Okay, so you know a little bit of David. <laughs> I know two out of about a dozen that you threw out there, so. <laughs> We're going to be talking about uh, an American playwright and scriptwriter named David Mamet. Mamet? Mamet. 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 M-A-M-E-T. I'm going to say it's French, Mamet. David Mamet. All right. Uh, David Mamet is an American playwright. Uh, film director, screenwriter, and author. He won a Pulitzer Prize and received Tony nominations for his plays, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and Speed the Plow. Uh, he first gained critical acclaim for a trio of off-Broadway uh, plays in the 70s, The Duck Variations, Sexual Perversity in Chicago, and American Buffalo. I think American Buffalo may be the only one that they made a film out of. It was an indie film. I'm thinking, late of, 90s, early I'm thinking of Buffalo 66, so no. Um, his, plays, uh, his plays Race and In the Penitent respectively opened on Broadway in 2009 and previewed off-Broadway in 2017. Feature films that Mamet both wrote and directed include House of Games, Homicide, Spanish Prisoner, and his biggest commercial success, Heist. If you have never seen Heist, it is incredible. Who's in it? Gene Hackman, Delroy Lindo... I like Gene Hackman. I don't no, know. Who, I don't know who the other one is. Delroy Linda. You, you know Delroy. You know <laughs> always Delroy. say that. You know Delroy. You're going to watch it go, oh, I know that guy. Uh, his screenwriting inc- inc- credits include The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Verdict, The Untouchables, Hoffa, Wag the Dog, and Hannibal. <clears throat> Mamet himself wrote the screenplays for the 1992 adaptation of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and wrote and directed the 1994 adaptation of, of his play, Oleana. Uh, 1992. He was the executive producer and frequent writer for the TV show The Unit from 2006 to 2009. Mamet's books include On Directing Film, uh, Commentary and Dialogue About Filmmaking, uh, The Old Religion, a novel about the lynching of Leo Frank, Five Cities of Refuge, Weekly Reflections on Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, a Torah commentary with uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, uh, The Wicked Son in 2006, uh, in a study of Jewish self-hatred and anti-Semitism. Bambi versus Godzilla, a commentary on the movie business. He did that? Yeah. Really? Yeah, the secret I knowledge. Remember, I, on the, <clears throat> Bam- I saw Bambi versus Godzilla in one of those um, uh, sick and twisted anime f- animation no, 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 this festivals. this is different. This is different. Oh. Uh, yeah, this is, a, uh, this, is a, this is a novel. He basically cribbed the... So not the sick and twisted no, no. thing that I'm talking but, about. But we need to post that on this episode. <laughs> I do know who Delroy Lindo is. You were right. <laughs> uh, the Secret Knowledge on Dismantling of American Culture in 2011, a commentary on cultural and political issues, and Three War Stories, a trio of novellas about the physical and psychological effects of war. <clears throat> now, one of Mamet's earliest jobs was as a busboy at Chicago's London House uh, in the Second City. He also worked as an actor, editor for Wee Magazine, and as a cab driver. He was educated at the Progressive uh, Francis W. Parker School and the Goddard College in Plainfield, Vermont. Uh, at the Chicago Public Library Foundation's 20th Anniversary Fundraiser in 2006, 
Though Maimon announced, my alma mater is the Chicago Public Library. I got what little education foundation I got in the third floor reading room under the tutelage of a Coca-Cola sign. <laughs> After a move to Chicago's north side, Mamet encountered theater director Robert uh, Stickinger, and they began to work occasionally at Stickinger's Hull House Theater. Uh, this represented the beginning of Mamet's lifelong involvement with the theater. Now, we're going to talk about his movies a lot. If you've never seen any of this stuff live, and now that you can, you should. Like Glengarry, Glenn Ross. Yes, that film is incredible. The dialogue is snappy. Compared to it being live, it's like the difference between shooting a bullet and throwing it. So, <clears throat> Glengarry, Glenn Ross, that's a Tony Award winning yes. play, I believe. Yeah, I want to say the film won an Oscar. I know it at least won a Golden Globe. Uh, I know it's. I know it was very heavily, heavily uh, lauded. So, Yeah, because coffee's for closers. Mamet is a founding. I thought they were pulling something up. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mamet is a founding member of the Atlantic Theater Company. Uh, he first again gained acclaim for a trio of those off-Broadway plays I, I mentioned in 1976: The Duck Variation, Sexual Perversity in Chicago, and American Buffalo. Uh, he awarded the he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1984 for Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor yeah. for Pacino. Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, really? Al Pacino, best actor in a supporting role. I didn't uh, even remember he was in it. 1993, yep. Wow. Now, I, I, Jack Lemmon in that is far and beyond some of the best work I've ever seen him do. And I love Jack Lemmon. Um, it received its first Broadway revival in the summer of 2005. Um, his play Race, which opened on Broadway on December 6, 2009, featured James Spader, David Allen Greer, Kerry Washington, and Richard Thomas in the cast. Uh, it received mixed reviews. His play The Anarchist, starring Pat, Patti Lapone and Deborah Winger, in her Broadway debu debut opened on Broadway on November 13, 2012. I had not known that Deborah Winger had not done Broadway before that. Hmm. Uh, its preview was scheduled to close on December 16, 2012. His 2017 off uh, play, uh, The Penitent, previewed off-Broadway on February 8th, 2017. Why is it so hard for me to say previewed off-Broadway today for some reason? <laughs> so in 2002, Mamet was inducted into the American Theater Hall of Fame. Uh, Mamet later received his Penn Laura Pell's Theater Award for Grand Master of American Theater in 2010. So so hold on. Let's go back to Glenn Gary, Glenn, Glenn Ross real quick, because I'm looking at it. And it's got a ton of people in it that I like. Uh-huh. But you didn't even remember Pacino was in it, and he's the top-listed actor in it. He's got first billing. Jack Lemmon blew his doors off. Jack Lemmon's, well, Jack Lemmon's a great actor, <laughs> but he's got second billing on this. Yes, Jack Lemmon blew Pacino's doors off. Interesting. Yeah. Has Adam uh, Alec Baldwin in it, too, yes. who may be in jail soon. So, yes. you know, whatever. Maybe at the time of this recording. <laughs> Might be. Or at the time of this release. <sighs> But yeah, uh, Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin played the biggest piece of crap in the world in Glengarry Glen Ross. He, he seems to be a little typecast with that <laughs> a lot of times. It's probably from this. I mean, if um, it, it, so Mamet has this really great snappy dialogue that he writes, and is probably is probably the most articulate user of the word fuck 
who has ever been born. I can't believe you just swore on this show. <laughs> yeah, except that it's David Mamet, and and he uses it. He uses it like a scalpel, right? He may even use it a lot, but it's so well done and it's snappy and it's there's so many undertones going on in his dialogue at any given time. You could tell that yeah, I'm snapping because I'm thinking of snappy dialogue. I'm with you. Um, You could tell um, that the guy spent a lot of time reading in his youth. Um, He's just so fluid. Um, it would be nice if, if some of his female characters were a little more three-dimensional. Now, I will say in Heist, he kind of, he kind of put that on the nose. State and Maine, every character in that is great. If you've never seen State and Maine, um, Charles Durning, again, Alec Baldwin, uh, Julia Stiles, William H. Macy, this cast is incredible. I- I'm shocked with the amount of people that I'm seeing in his stuff that I just haven't seen a lot. Oh my of god, that's because people like working with to him. it. Yeah, people like working with him because the dialogue's so good. Uh, in 2017, Mamet released an online class for writers entitled "David Mamet Teaches Dramatic Writing." Um, and in 2019, Mamet returned to the London West End with a new play, "Bitter Wheat," at the Garrick Theater, starring John Malkovich. I have not seen anything on "Bitter Wheat." Sad to say, I, I would like to. Because even if it's the worst play he's ever done, it's probably better than anything else that's uh, on the West End right now anyway. Uh, Mamet's first film work was as a screenwriter, later directing his own scripts. Mamet's uh, first produced screenplay was the 1981 production of The Postman Always Rings Twice, based on James L. Kane's novel. He received an Academy Award nomination one year later for the 1982 legal drama The Verdict. He also wrote the screenplays for The Untouchables, Hoffa, The Edge, Wag the Dog, Ronan, and Hannibal. He wrote an episode of Hill Street Blues. Yes, he did. He received his second Academy Award nomination for Wag the Dog. Now, in 1987, Mamet made his film directing debut with his screenplay, House of Games, uh, which won Best Film and Best Screenplay Awards at the 87 Venice Film Festival and the Film of the Year in 1989 for the London Film Critics Circle Award. The, vil- the film starred his then-wife, Lindsay Krauss, and many longtime stage associates, associates and friends, including fellow Goddard college graduates. Mamet was quoted as saying, It was my first film as a director, and I needed support, so I stacked the deck. After House of Games, Mamet later wrote and directed two more films focusing on the world of con artists, The Spanish Prisoner and The Heist. Among those films, Heist enjoyed the biggest commercial success. I, I really need to watch the heist now. Yeah. Now that I'm seeing, well, I mean, you know me, I love a good con movie. Oh, I the love heist a good great. con movie. The heist is great. I would say it's better than um, oh, Ocean's God. Eleven. No, I was thinking of one with Rachel Weisz and um, and, and I love the movie. Uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman's in it. Rachel Weisz is in it. Uh, Edward Burns is in it. I want to say Edward Burns either directed it or wrote it. Hell, Mammoth may have written it as snappy as it is. I just don't have it here. I can't remember the name of the, the film, but it's it's incredible. I'll, I'll look find, it up. I'll find it. And and it's great. But yeah, if you haven't seen the heist, it is greatness. Because it's a, everybody is screwing everybody else in the heist. And that's basically what Mammoth does best. Uh, other films that Mammoth wrote, uh, both wrote and directed, includes Things Change, Homicide. Uh, which was nominated for a Palme d'Or at Cannes. And he won Screenwriter of the Year Award uh, for the London Film Critics Circle Award for Oleana. 
Uh, the Winslow Boy stayed in Maine, which is was made in 2000, which is one of the best casts I've ever seen. It's State Spartan in 2004 and Red Belt in 2008. And he also did the 2013 biopic TV movie Phil Spector. Uh, a feature-length film, a thriller titled Blackbird, was intended for release in 2015, but is still in development. When Maimon adapted his play for the 1992 film Glengarry Glen Ross, he wrote an additional part, including the monologue Coffees for Closers for Alec Baldwin. Coffees for Closers. Mamet continued to work with an informal repertory company for his films, including Krauss, William H. Macy, Joe Montaigne, Rebecca Pigeon, as well as the aforementioned School of Friends. David did, uh, did a rewrite for the script for Ronan under the pseudonym Richard Weiss and turned in an early version of a script for Malcolm X, which, he w- which was rejected by director Spike Lee. I would say that some of Mamet's stuff probably ended up in Malcolm X. Just there's some bits of dialogue in that film. That I don't think they were they they were probably just cribbed from him. I don't I don't think Spike Spike Lee, whoever the writer was, directly ripped it off. But I they definitely saw some things from Mamet that made it in the film. You know I don't I don't want to cast aspersions, but there's some there, there's some bits in that, especially when he's he's still kind of a street a street guy. You know, working on the streets, uh, selling numbers, some of that stuff. Cribbed right out of Mamet. Mamet directed a film version of Catastrophe, a one-act play by Samuel Beckett, featuring Harold Pinter and John Gielgud uh, in his final screen performance. In 2008, he directed and wrote the mixed martial arts movie Red Belt, about a martial arts instructor tricked into fighting in a, in a professional bout. Uh, and in his, his nonfiction piece on directing film, Mamet asserts that directors should focus on getting the point of a scene across rather than simply following a protagonist or adding visual, visual, beautiful, or intriguing shots. It's more about the characters than it is the setting. And you will find that in his films. A lot of his stuff is flat. It'll be pretty in the background, well-dressed. He doesn't do a lot of camera tricks. He's, he's sort of the antithesis of David Lynch. It's all about character, dialogue, story, go. Sorry to go backwards. The movie you were looking for was Confidence. Confidence. Confidence, thank you. Uh, that that and the heist are the two best caper flicks I've ever seen. Yeah, I'm def. I, I'm most definitely going to have to watch both of them then. Because oh yeah, I confidence. Lo- oh my god, confidence just starts out. That's why I used to love that show White Collar so much yeah. because it's just I love it's one a con good after another con job. Oh my god, I can't. I can't believe you haven't seen Confidence. Mm-mm. Nope, I mean either. Both of them. Yeah. Mammon asserts directors. Oh, um, sorry. <laughs> Circling back, <laughs> films should create order from disorder in search uh, of an objective. In 1986, Mamet published Writing in Restaurants, a collection of essays. And in 1990, Mamet published The Hero Pony, a 55-page collection of poetry. He also published a series of short plays, monologues, and four novels. His monologues and short plays are done by college students the world over, especially when they want to get something that's gritty. Just crib from Mamet. I, I I can't tell you how many times uh, I've seen Glengarry Glen Ross. Just bits from it. Because it's just that good. Now, granted, there are no women in Glengarry Glen Ross. It's all men. Um, which is yeah, why I kind of say I think sometimes he, he really needs to expand out with, with some of his female characters. But again, with State and Maine, boy, I don't know what I'm talking about. But his earlier work. You know, and I think he, he, he probably heard that criticism and... Uh, and took it to heart. 
he published a series of short plays and monologues, uh, The Village, The Old Religion, Wilson, A Consideration of the Source, and Chicago. He also wrote several nonfiction texts and children's stories, including True or False, Heresy, and Common Sense for the Actor. And in 2004, he published a lauded version of the classical Faust story, Faustus. However, when the play was staged in San Francisco during the spring of 2004, it was not well received by critics. And on May 1st, 2010, Mamet released a graphic novel, The Trials of Roderick Spode, The Human Ant. On June 2nd, 2011, The Secret Knowledge of the Dismantling of American Culture, Mamet's book detailing the conversion of modern liberalism to a reformed liberal, was released. Mamet published three war stories, a collection of novellas on November 11th, 2013. And on December 3rd, 2019, Mamet was set to publish a novel, The Diary of a Porn Star by Priscilla uh, Riston Ranger, as told to David Mamet with an afterward by Mr. Mamet. He's also done quite a bit of television and radio. Um, Mamet wrote one episode of Hill Street Blues, as you mentioned. Uh, it was called A Wasted Weekend. Uh, it aired in 1987. Uh, his then-wife, Lindsay Krauss, appeared in numerous episodes, including that one, as Officer McBride. So Officer McBride was actually David Mamet's wife. Mamet is also the creator, producer, and frequent writer on the television series The Unit, where he wrote and well-circulated memos to the writing staff. He directed a third-season episode of The Shield with Sean, Ryder, or with Sean Ryan, and in 2007, Mamet directed two television commercials for the Ford Motor Company. The two 30-second ads featured the Ford Edge and were filmed in Mamet's signature style of fast-paced dialogue and clear, simple imagery. <laughs> Mamet's sister Lynn is a producer and writer for television shows such as Unit and Law and & Order. Uh, Mamet has contributed several dramas to BBC Radio through Jarvis and Ayers productions, including an adaptation of Glengarry Glen Ross for the BBC Radio 3, which I would love to get my hands on, but some of that stuff's kind of hard to find. Uh, and new dramas for the BBC Radio 4. The comedy Keep Your Pantheon, or On the Whole, I'd Rather Be in Mesopotamia, was aired in 20, 2007. Uh, the Christopher Boys Communion uh, was another Jarvis and Ayers production, first broadcast on BBC Radio on 4th, BBC Radio 4 on March 8th, 2021. Mammoth Speak. So now we're going to talk about Mammoth Speak. Mamet's style of writing dialogue are marked by a cynical, street-smart, edgy, precisely crafted for effect, if so distinct distinctive that it has come to be called Mamet Speak. The reason I am reading this so quickly is I'm trying to do it in Mamet Speak. Right. I am not very good at it. Uh, Mamet himself was, has criticized his, uh, his tendency to write uh, pretty at the expense of sound, logical plots when... Asked how he developed his style for writing dialogue, Mamet said, In my family, in the days prior to television, we liked uh, to while away the evenings by making ourselves miserable, <laughs> based solely on our ability to speak the language viciously. That's probably where my ability was honed. <laughs> and that's all my notes for David Mamet. I tried to get through them quickly because mm. I wanted to do it Mamet style. No, and that's cool. Uh, I'm Like I said, I'm fascinated that there are some con movies that I've never seen. Well, dude, State and Maine. Another Even one. It's kind of political. It's, yeah, there's definitely a con going on in the background. I, I'm I'm going to check them out. Um, you know, because I only knew I, I I've known of his big movies, of course. I mean, because yeah. he's got some award nominees yeah. and whatnot. So um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely stuff I'm going to uh, wag I'm the dogs. A con out. movie. Is it really? Yeah. I'm not. It's familiar. a political con. Yeah, I'm going to check those out. Yeah, I'm, they invent a war. I'll, I, I'll give you a review once I check them out. Right I think on. I think that sounds that sounds pretty cool. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. For well, that. you're quite welcome. All I can say to that is, look, see these movies; they're really great. But if you really, really want to see it snappy and quick, 
go see it live. Yeah. Go see a... Dude, go see a college production of Glenn Gary, Glenn sure. Ross. Well, I mean, you're not going to have to convince a whole lot of people that these are good movies. Like I said, they they are award-nominated, yeah. some award-winning yeah. uh, uh, movies and, and, and Broadway productions. Yeah. So, yeah, no, no, that's that's great. I'm, I'm going to check them out. I'm going to check them out. So, right cool. All right, with that, then, we'll step over to the murdery side of the house. Murder. For today, I got my information from All That's Interesting, uh, Wikipedia, Britannica, a&E, The Cinemaholic, Murderpedia, I love Murderpedia, <laughs> Murderpedia is Biogra- awesome. uh, Biography, Crime Investigation, and Discovery Plus, The Green River Killer, The Mind of a Monster. You're doing The Green River Killer? I am doing The Green River Killer. I've had this on my list for a while. Um, All right, it's, so Green River. It's, uh, yeah. man, it's, th- th- this, this was some tough stuff to get through. Um, you know, it's not... It's not horrifically graphic. I can't even remember if I really get real terribly graphic in here, but it's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it's a lot of people too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're talking about a lot of people. A lot of people. Uh, Very possibly the most prolific serial killer in American history. Well, isn't there a supposition that it may be more than one person? No, not anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. It's 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 Gary Ridgway. Okay. He was the Green River Killer. Okay. Uh, before we get into it, I wanted to remind everyone of the McDonald Triad that we discussed in a previous ex- ep- episode. I'm going to expand on it here. I've specifically waited for this episode to expand on it. So, for those who don't know from other episodes, the McDonald Triad, also known as the Triad of Sociopathy and Homicidal Triad, is a set of three factors. The presence of any two are considered to be predictive of or associated with violent tendencies, particularly in relation to serial offenses. The triad was first proposed by psychiatrist J.M. McDonald in The Threat to Kill. It was a 1963 article in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Small-scale studies conducted by psychiatrists Daniel Hellman and Nathan Blackman, and then FBI agents Johnny Douglas and Robert K. Ressler, along with uh, Dr. Ann Burgess, claimed substantial evidence for the association of these childhood patterns and later predatory behavior. Uh, The triad links cruelty to animals, obsession with fire setting, and persistent bedwetting past a certain age to violent behaviors, particularly homicidal behavior, and sexually sex, sexually predatory behavior. Um, arson or fire setting is theorized to be a less severe or first shot at releasing aggression. Uh, extensive periods of humiliation have been found to be present in the childhoods of several adult serial killers. Uh, these repetitive episodes of humiliation can lead to feelings of frustration and anger, which somehow need to be released in order to return to a normal state of self-worth. So that's one. Cruelty to animals is mainly used to vent frustration and anger the same way fire setting is. Extensive amounts of humiliation were also found in the childhoods of children who engaged in acts of cruelty to animals. During childhood, serial killers could not retaliate towards those who caused them humiliation, so they chose animals because they were viewed as weak and vulnerable. Uh, Future victim selection is already in the process at a young age. Uh, studies have also found those who engaged in childhood acts of cruelty to animals to use the same method of killing on their human victims as they did their animal victims. Really? So they figured it out on the animals? They, they, they were basically practicing for later. Uh, uranesis is unintentional bedwetting during sleep persistent after the age of five. So the bedwetting must continue twice a week for at least three consecutive months. 
Some continue to speculate that urinesis may be related to fire setting and animal cruelty in some way. It's part of the humiliation. One argument is that because persistent bedwetting beyond the age of five can be humiliating to a child, especially if he or she is belittled by a parental figure or other adult, as a result, this could cause the child to use fire setting or cruelty to animals as an outlet for their frustration. One researcher notes that urinesis is an unconscious, involuntary, and nonviolent act. Therefore, linking it to violent, violent crime is problematic, uh, more problematic than doing so with animal cruelty or fire setting. So that's the McDonald triad in his expansion because uh, I've talked about it in several episodes. And like I said, I was saving it for this one. So with this in mind, let's dive into Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, from 1982 to 1998, Gary Ridgway terrorized Washington State as the Green River Killer. He murdered at least 59 women, but the real number could be as high as 71. And if true, this would make him, again, the most prolific, one of the most prolific serial killers in American history and one of the most brutal for sure. Uh, Ridgway was born the second of three boys on February 18, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah, to Thomas Newton Ridgway, a bus driver, and Mary Rita Ridgway, a sales clerk at J.C. Penney. Um, his father would often openly complain about the presence of sex workers on his bus. Uh, his mother was very domineering and would often have violent arguments with his father. She would often tell Ridgway that he was worthless and that he disgraced her. <clears throat> this is going to come into play on multiple factors. She, he had a father who was constantly complaining about sex workers, uh-huh. a mother who was very domineering. So this next part... Ridgway would later tell psychologists that he was sexually attracted to his mother, so the Oedipus complex. Um, and this this stems where children during the phallic stage of development, children ages about three to six, experience an unconscious feeling of desire uh, for their opposite sex parent and jealousy and envy towards the same parent. So the child often becomes hostile towards the same sex parent, seeing them as a rival. So this is where this is a problem in the Ridgway household. He, he has sexual feelings for his mother. His father, who he should see as a rival, is weak. So, so the way children outgrow the Oedipal complex, if it really exists, I mean, it's a Freud thing and some people debate whether it's true or not, but the way they grow out of it is they eventually get old enough that they see that their father is the strong figure and is really no longer the rival, and so the attention of the child now goes to sexual partners that is more appropriate. Okay, um, it, 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 and so the thinking is this is fairly common in 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 all human beings. Yes, yes, that most that that, that most human beings have some sort of edible complex between the ages of about three and six, uh-huh. where they view the opposite sex parent as a sexual partner, or they have. They have arousals within them. They have feelings of arousal. Okay. You know, they don't really identify with that at yeah, three to yeah, six. Yeah. Um, but uh, but you know, you know, the, this eventually gets resolved as as really more as the child identifies with their same sex parent. The the parent eventually becomes a role model and no longer a rival, which okay. is where, under normal circumstances, these these emotions and behaviors change. You, you know, thinking about it with uh, with. My relationship with with my children, I, you know what I kind of I kind of see that, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, you know, yeah, that that kind of makes sense. That tracks. Yeah, 
Yeah. Because yeah. we're really tight, but they're really tight with me between three and six. And right. then they, you know, they kind of spend more time with mom after that. Sure. So, yeah, that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. That tracks. Well, and, and again, I mean, Ridgeway, he never saw his father as a role model, so these feelings never went away. And so he always had them. Uh, Ridgeway also did have a bedwetting problem until he was 13. And his mother, very inappropriately, would wash his genitals after every episode. And she would humiliate him while he did it. Uh, in one particular episode, he remembered when she was washing him, her robe came open and she was naked underneath, which contributed to him seeing her in a sexual light. Um, I saw some videos, too, of of her as they were growing up, and she was always in, in bikinis and really kind of strutting around and, and whatnot. She wasn't really doing anything to uh, you know, besmirch this, this behavior at all. Um, so she would, she would belittle him while she was washing him, and then she would embarrass him about him in front of the family. Um, so this, again, this is part of the humiliation in the McDonald triad and Ridgeway would later tell psychologists that he had conflicting feelings of anger to go along with the sexual uh, attraction to his mother. And he began to have fantasies about killing her. He said he actually had fantasies of ruining her and slicing her up. Um, in 1960, the Ridgeway family moved to McMicken Heights, which is now SeaTac, Washington. Uh, there Ridgeway would attend Chinook junior high and eventually Tai uh, high school. Uh, Gary Ridgway had a low IQ. Uh, it was recorded as being in the low 80s, and he wasn't really a good student. Um, he was dyslexic, which probably led to a lot of uh, of him not being a good student, and he was probably not never diagnosed or handled properly. I mean, in 1960, uh, probably not. Yeah, I know, but dyslexia is usually a sign of high intelligence, not the other way around. Not in him. Yeah. Because he, he it was very, very low. He, he did get held back two grades in high school. Uh, Ridgeway later once even cried when he was talking about this. He talked about how he was afraid he would be put on the short bus. And he also said he was a very angry kid who had a hard time in school. Um, he was, however, very socially well adapted. And they said he never had any problems getting a date or get girlfriends. Um, but he was not favored. Uh, he, he was not the favored child of his siblings. He was humiliated at home. Um, his, the, uh, the honor of the favored child actually went to his brother, Gary, who was the more accomplished sibling. Uh, Gary'd run for student office in high school and later majored in physics at a, at a local reputable college. So Ridgway felt like he was the outlier. His brother was the jock and, and was the popular one. And while Ridgway did do wrestling in school, he, he just felt like the outsider in the family. Um, and it was this and his fear uh, of his low IQ that most likely went into the humiliation that would really kind of help shape him into a serial killer, you know, down the line. Uh, it's possible he felt that uh, being a serial killer was something he could succeed at. Wow. Yeah. Man, D&D could have helped this guy out. <laughs> Wasn't around in 1960. That's true. That's true. Uh, Ridgway had no juvenile criminal record, but he did later admit to committing arson. He tortured animals, and he nearly had his first victim at 16 years old. Uh, he once uh, trapped a cat uh, in a freezer to kill it. Uh, Bruce Reverd, a neighbor of the Ridgway, said that everyone knew Ridgway had a reputation of abusing animals. Uh, Bruce said Ridgway had a BB gun that he would shoot at animals just to see what he could get away with. And then at 16 years old, he led a six-year-old boy into the woods and stabbed him through the ribs into his liver. 
Uh, according to the boy and Ridgeway himself, Ridgeway walked away laughing and saying, I hope you're going to die. I always wondered what it would be like to kill someone. Yeah, I know. And I didn't read anywhere that he got in trouble for this. Uh, I, I really he stabbed a six-year-old kid in, in the liver. In the liver. Mm-hmm. And then walked away and, 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 and walked said, away and I nothing happened to him. No, I, well, I didn't see that he got in trouble for this. I, I didn't read anything. And I, I don't know, did the six-year-old boy not say anything about the wound? I mean... How it, could he not? He would have been bleeding profusely. One would think, but... But then think about when we got different wounds from doing something stupid when we were in school and we hit it somehow. Yeah. I, I don't know how it could happen, but I couldn't find anything anywhere that he got in trouble for this. So, I remember swinging out real high on a rope swing and letting go and sliding down a tree and kind of knocked myself out for a minute. Oh, yeah. And my mom didn't find out about it until she saw my scar running all the way up and down my... I still have it. It's, it's about yay big now. Um, I, I tore open my knee all the way down to the bone um, when I was in, um, I think it was elementary school. I might have been in junior high when it happened. Um, but I did have to go to the hospital and get ha- and did have to get stitches. And my mother didn't know until um, 2021 exactly how that injury happened. And it was <laughs> by being stupid. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ridgeway did graduate at 20 years old and in 1969. He married his 19-year-old high school girlfriend, Claudia Craig. Uh, but then he would soon join the Navy, and he was sent to Vietnam, where he served on a supply ship. And and it said, one site said he saw combat, and then I t- heard somebody later on that said they never did see combat. So I'm really not sure about this. But he's on a supply ship. I can't see how much combat he would see, especially out in the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, planes? Yeah. Planes attacking the fleet? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, during his time in the military, uh, Ridgeway had frequent sex with sex workers, and he contracted gonorrhea twice. And he said this pissed him off, but he continued seeing sex, wor- sex workers without uh, protection. Again, low IQ. Yeah. Meanwhile, his wife, Home Alone, began dating, and their marriage ended within a year in January of 1972, and he would marry his second wife the following year. So it didn't stay single long. I hope he got the uh, the other thing cleared up beforehand. I, I have no idea. I, I assume so. In the, in the military, I think they kind of took care of that. Uh, friends and family described Ridgeway, Ridgeway as friendly but strange. His first two marriages ended because of infidelity with both partners. Yeah. His second wife, Marsha Winslow, claimed Ridgeway liked to put her in a chokehold and have sex in public in inappropriate places. Some of these places were areas where his victims' bodies later would be found. Oh. Um, it was during his second marriage that Ridgeway became fanatically religious. He would proselytize door to door and would read the Bible out at home and at work. And he insisted that his wife, Marcia, follow the strict teachings of their church pastor. He would also frequently cry after sermons or reading the Bible, but he continued to solicit sex workers. <laughs> uh, Ridgeway and Marcia would have a son, Matthew, in 1975. Uh, but they would divorce in 1981. Uh, Matthew would live with his mother after the divorce, but Ridgeway was allowed weekend visitation with his son. This actually comes into play later. According to his three ex-wives and several old girlfriends, Ridgeway had an insatiable sexual appetite and demanded sex several times a day, 
Often he would want to have sex in public places or in the woods. And he had a fixation with sex workers, but he would complain about their presence in the neighborhood. A lot like his dad would complain about the sex workers on his bus. Um, It is possible that he was torn uh, between his uncontrollable lust and his religious beliefs. That was tearing at him mentally. In 1980, he was arrested for allegedly choking a sex worker. Uh, No charges were filed as he claimed the woman had bit him while performing oral sex. And then he would be arrested two years later for solicitation of a sex worker. In 1982, he was stopped with a sex worker in his truck and questioned by police, but then let go. Uh, A few years later, he was arrested again after a proposition an undercover police officer posing as a sex worker. Uh, Ridgeway pled prostitution addiction, and his guilty plea meant a lenient sentence at that point. In July 1982, uh, two teenage boys were walking along uh, Seattle's Green River, and they discovered the body of 16-year-old Wendy Caulfield, who had been missing after leaving her foster home. The two boys said they saw a white pair of tennis shoes in the water and went to investigate, and when they did, they would find that uh, Wendy had her head wrapped in a jacket and her pants were tied around, uh, around her neck. Over the next four weeks, over the next few weeks, four more bodies would be discovered along the banks of the Green River. All women, all would be strangled. Um, on August 12th, 23-year-old Debbie Bonner was found in the Green River by an employee at a meatpacking company. Uh, her body had drifted up to the sandbar, and she had been found completely naked and strangled. On August 15th, three more bodies were found. Uh, on this one, a fisherman in his rubber dinghy on the Green River thought he saw a submerged female mannequin. Just a point of note here, because I've heard this in many, many podcasts, and it's a very hard and fast rule for true crime. It's never a mannequin. It's never a mannequin. Well, you know, and is it possible that your brain sees something like that and, 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 and your brain is telling you, oh, no, that's not a real person. That's just a mannequin. It's 100% possible. Um, I, I mean, this kind of relates, kind of doesn't, but I remember a time I was coming home from a concert and I was crossing the, uh, the bridge over the Trinity on 7th. Yes. This is the Paul Simon concert. I remember this. Yeah, were you with me? No, no, no. I met you where you were going to. After- <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Cause we came over the bridge and then suddenly there was a body in the road. And, you know, I swerved, we pulled over and I got out and started running towards the body. And as I was getting up there, I saw a leg not attached to the body. And I'm thinking the whole time, please don't be his leg. 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 Well, it was his leg, but it was a prosthetic leg that had fallen off after he got hit by a car. Yeah, that kind of freaked me out. Um, So, do 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 where Debbie Bonner, she was found with the mannequin. There we are. Uh, so the fisherman, he tried to fish it out. Instead, he fell into the water, and in a very cold, sharp instant, he realized uh, his mistake is not one, but there were two dead women floating past him. Uh, he swam back to the safety of the riverbank, and he called the police. Oh, that's going to require some uh, therapy. A little bit. Uh, police did arrive, and they cordoned off the area, only to discover a third murdered woman in the nearby grassland. Uh, there was a pair of blue trousers that was knotted around her neck. Her breasts were exposed, and there were bruises on her arms and legs. Her name was Opal Mills, and she was just 16 years old. She had been murdered less than 24 hours after being found. Uh, the other two bodies had also been strangled. Uh, both had pyramid-shaped rocks lodged in their uh, vaginal cavities. 
had he not done this, he might not have been caught. The rocks? The rocks enabled the semen to stay inside of them that would later be used as evidence against him. Okay. Um, so they had that, the, 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 the rocks lodged inside. This would be 31-year-old Marcy Chapman, who was found in the shallow lo- water alongside of the naked body of 17-year-old Cynthia Hines. Uh, they were also weighted down in the water by other rocks. Uh, Detective David Reichert was one of the first authorities to arrive on the scene, and police soon realized they had a serial killer on the loose. Uh, All five women were found within a mile of each other, except for Marcy. Uh, And except for Marcy, they were all in their 20s or younger. On August 16th, the King County Sheriff set up the Green River Task Force to investigate the killings. The body count then rose as more victims were found around the river and around the SeaTac Airport. Over the next two years, the Green River Killer sexually assaulted and killed more than 40 women. Uh, Detective Riker told Time Magazine, every time you found a body, it was like being hit on the head with a baseball bat. Uh, police are then focused on prostitutes who have been the profession of all the victims so far. Uh, two separate prostitutes claimed that there was a man in a blue and white truck who abducted and raped them and tried to kill them. And a suspect is picked up who confesses to these two attacks, but not to the Green River killings. There was also a taxi driver named Melvin Foster who's investigated because he fits the profile suggested by uh, FBI agent John Douglas. He told police he had given a ride to a few of the victims, and police began to surveil uh, Marvin or Melvin for 24 hours a day for three months. Uh, during that time, four more women go missing, and Melvin is ruled out as a suspect. Yeah, because they were following him, and mm-hmm. he didn't do it. Then on September 26, less than two months after the first victim was found, the decomposing remains of 17-year-old prostitute named Giselle A. Lovorn uh, are discovered. She's been strangled with a pair of men's black socks, and her blonde hair has been dyed black. I didn't find any information on that error. I didn't hear why he dyed her hair black. Are unless we sure that he dyed her hair black? Uh, he, he, he admits to it later. So I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I, I didn't get anything on that. Though. Did I his mom have weird. black hair? Um, maybe I don't remember, to be honest. That's a great point. Something I need to, I need to look up. Um, 14 more females, mostly sex workers disappear over the next several months. In January of 1983, the body of 16 year old Linda rule was found eight miles North of Seattle. Ridgeway had set her hair on fire. He later said it excited him because she had beautiful hair and excited him to hurt her more. From March to April 1983, six more women are reported missing. Later in April of 8 of 1983, 18-year-old sex worker, worker Marie Malvar uh, was last seen by her boyfriend getting into a paint scratch pickup with a dark-haired man about 30 to 40 years old. Uh, the boyfriend saw her arguing with the man before they drove off, and he called police, and they began searching for the truck. They found the truck at a house. This house was Gary Ridgway's house. So on April 30th, police questioned Ridgway at his home about his knowledge of Marie, but he denied knowing her. Ridgway actually knew the police sergeant who came to question him and knew him from school. And the sergeant was like, no, this ain't the guy. Can't be Gary. Can't be Gary. And so let him go. What they didn't realize is as they were talking, Ridgway stood against a fence to conceal the scratches Marie left on his arm while she tried to escape. 
Mm. Uh, he would later burn the scratches with battery acid to describe them once police left. Um, what they didn't know, and this is the other thing that just absolutely kills me. So they actually had him in 83. They had him in 83. Not only did they have him, Marie Malvar was in the house while they were questioning him. Alive. Oh. She was there the entire time. So, it took police until 1986 to tie the Green River Killer to reports of a pockmarked faced man in a pickup truck seen driving off with 16-year-old sex worker Kimi Kai Pitsor. She was killed in 1983, and her skeletal remains were found, but the skull were missing. In November, police spoke again with Ridgeway about the murders, but he, again, he denied any knowledge of the victims. Again, for whatever reason, they believed him, and police had no evidence against Ridgeway, so they couldn't connect him to any of the crimes, and again, he gets let go. More women start to disappear. Uh, the police even engaged the local Boy Scouts to help search for bodies. How awful is that? <laughs> they, I mean, well, they, they, they're, so many bodies are coming up. Yeah. And they're finding them everywhere. They, they're, getting, they're getting volunteers to help out with this. Uh, one scout did find a skeleton covered with trash. Uh, more police are assigned to the case, but this only seems to increase the discovery of the bodies. Again, the Boy Scout's going to have to have therapy. Oh, most likely. Uh, by the end of October 1983, police have recovered 12 bodies. 25 women are still missing. In November of 83, police found the body of 18-year-old Mary Meehan. Uh, she was found in Taiyi, Washington, 14 miles south of Seattle. And they discovered that at the time of her murder, she was eight months pregnant. Oh. When they interviewed Gary on this, they said, Gary, she was pregnant. You knew she was pregnant. And he goes, no, I, I really couldn't tell. And they said, Gary, she was eight months pregnant. You knew she was pregnant. And then he went, oh, well, maybe I did. I don't, I don't know. It's awful. Uh, the first victim of 1984 was the skeletal remains uh, found in 1984. was the skeletal remains of Denise Louise Plager. Uh, as a girl, Denise had been adopted and spent time in various institutions. She later attempted suicide, became a mother, addicted to drugs, and then finally entered prostitution to pay for her habit. And she was tragically easy prey for Gary Ridgway. Nine more bodies would be discovered over the next two months. In May of 1984, Ridgway was a person of interest due to his known association with prostitutes. Ridgway actually contacted police, supposedly with the intention of assisting them. That happens, too. You'll find that um, killers are actually at the press conference, at vigils, at things like that. They, they, I know they David Berkowitz used to show up a lot. Yeah, they, they hide in plain him. sight. Yeah, it's like that, someone said, that dude's going to be here. So he, he contacted them. And uh, he then passed a polygraph where he denied killing any women. We discussed in a previous episode the yep. unreliability of polygraphs. Uh, by the end of 1984, the remains of 28 bodies had been recovered and 16 women were still missing. Most of Ridgeway's victims were sex workers or runaways. He would pick them up along the Pacific Highway South. And sometimes he showed pictures. He showed the women pictures of his son to trick them into trusting him. Hey, look, here's my son. And he would put his thumb over his name on his driver's license. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because they would. They would ask for his ID when they'd go in. And he would just put his hand over it and say, you know, that's my son. He'd also have children's toys in the car so that he seemed very trustworthy and harmless. 
Um, Ridgway said that, uh, later said that in his head while he was sweet talking the women, that all he thought in his head was kill, kill, kill. Uh, he also said, I just love killing women. I didn't have no morals. Conscience didn't stop me. I want to be the best serial killer out there. It was just a killing spree going for the count. I want a hundred that year. Uh, they would then have sex, and after having sex with them from behind, he would wrap his forearm around to the front of their necks, use the other arm to pull back as tightly as he could, strangling them. He killed most victims in his home, his truck, or in secluded areas. Most bodies were dumped in wooded areas around the Green River SeaTac International Airport and other dump sites within South King County. Uh, two confirmed victims and another two suspected victims were found in the Portland, Oregon area. Uh, the bodies were often left in, cu- in clusters, sometimes posed, usually nude. And Ridgway later explained that he didn't find uh, that he did not find necrophilia more sexually satisfying, but having sex with the deceased reduced his need to obtain obtain a living victim and thus limited his exposure to being caught. So he was in necrophilia too. Ugh. Yeah, because most of the bodies were not discovered until only skeletons remained. Two victims are still unidentified. Uh, occasionally Ridgeway uh, would contaminate the dump sites with gum, cigarettes, and written materials belonging to others, and he even transported a few victims' remains across state lines into Oregon to confuse police. Around February 1985, Ridgeway began dating Judith Lynch, who became his third wife in 88. Uh, Ridgeway said meeting Judith was the single most thing he was proud of. He was in love with this woman, okay. and it was possibly the only one he ever loved. Okay. Uh, She said later when she moved into Ridgeway's house while they were dating, she noticed that there was no carpet. It's suspected he probably used the carpet to wrap a body. Uh, She described how he would... Oh, you mean later on? Mm -hmm, Okay. Like we said, oh, you don't have carpet. (laughs) You must be hiding bodies. Right. Oh, you don't have carpet. That's cool. Uh, She described later how he would leave for work early in the morning some days, supposedly for the overtime pay. But Judith later suspected that he must have committed some of the murders while supposedly working these early morning shifts. Think how creepy this must have been when she later would realize she slept in the same bed where possibly 30 women were murdered in. I, I just, I, I don't know how I could handle this because she, yeah. I saw interviews with her too. So, so, so she didn't have any idea. She had until- zero knowledge of this until after he was arrested. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, his, his, his kill rate did go down while he was married to Judith of his known 49 victims. Only three were killed after he was married to Judith. Okay. Um, later again, he would say this because he truly loved her. Mm -hmm. He did, however, say that he was starting to wake up in the middle of the night and see women staring at him. He said that he scared, this scared him so much. He considered burning the house to the ground. He thought it was haunted. Uh, from June until December of 1985, five more women and girls, women and girls' bodies would be found, bringing the total number of victims to 34. By June of 1986, yes, he wasn't committing. The, he wasn't committing. They were just finding the, the bodies. He's finding them where he dumped them. Okay. Right. By June of 86, the total would uh, would raise to 36, and there were at least five women missing at this point. In 1986, police got desperate. They 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 needed any information that would further the case. And uh, Detective Reichart got a, uh, I, th- I think he got a letter. I can't remember if he got a letter or a phone call, but he, he got a letter or a phone call from somebody who said, hey, I'll help you with this case. It was Ted Bundy. <laughs> Ted, in, in true Sons of the Lambs fashion, he called up the detective and said, I can help you find this guy. 
So I thought that was kind of wild. Uh, Reichert immediately flew to Florida, uh, where Ted Bundy was being held on death row. Uh, Bundy told authorities that the killer might be going back to the victim's corpses and performing sex with him. So he had figured Ridgeway out. Um, Gary Ridgeway would later confirm this, of course. And he said he would discard their bodies in clusters so he could return to areas and relive the experience. He said this was his comfort zone. In 1987, police got a search warrant for Ridgeway's home and his vehicles as he was the last person supposedly seen with two of the victims. Uh, Police now also had a sketch of potentially the Green River Killer from a sex worker that survived his attack and ran. The sketch matched mugshots of Gary Ridgeway from previous arrests. They'd also been placing surveillance on Ridgeway and noticed very suspicious activity when he drove down Pacific Highway South. Police could tell by his mannerisms he was hunting. Mm -hmm. During this search, he was also ordered to provide a saliva sample to DNA, but... In 1987, DNA testing was insufficient enough to time the crimes, but they now had a DNA sample. They didn't find anything at the Ridgeway home that gave them any evidence uh, that would tie him to the Green River Killer, and everything they had on Ridgeway was circumstantial, so they couldn't put him at the crime scene. A decade after beginning this investigation, authorities had collected 4,000 pieces of physical evidence and had spent over $15 million on the investigation, but had nothing to show for it. Nothing. They didn't have Ridgeway at this point. They couldn't. Um, and in 1989, the investigation into Gary Ridgeway was officially closed. Wow. Well, uh, okay, yeah, but in 1989, he basically had stopped. Mm-hmm. Well, except for the three, you said there were three women while he was married to Mm -hmm. her. I think there was at least, there may have been one after this. I can't remember if there was one after this or not. I think there was, I think the latest one was 93, if I recall correctly. Um, In 1990, the Green River Task Force was disbanded. These people were so beaten down. Uh, I saw interviews with all the detectives and they were just, they were just completely beaten down. They spent over a decade trying to find this guy and came up with nothing i remember a scene in a film about the the soviet era serial killer citizen x um the the his uh, the the chief investigator his his boss is like and it was after the iron curtain had fallen he's like i've been in contact with this man from the fbi who told me about this he said we you're not allowed to hunt serial killers for longer than a year at a time mm-hmm. you've been doing this for nine years i did not know and i am sorry yeah and Stephen Rhea Bre- who's playing the investigator breaks down mm-hmm. such a powerful scene but I, I was like i did not know that i did not know that i could i could Again, imagine. it was from a film so i don't know how true it is but apparently there's there's basically a rule you don't get to stay on these things for 10 years or more because well, it, it kills you. And the detectives that they interviewed for this, they were on it for most of that decade. And, and just, I, I just couldn't imagine. Yeah. So we come to March of 20, 2001 and DNA testing has improved. Yes, it has. And investigators new use new forensic testing to reexamine evidence from the year, the, uh, from the years the Green River Carol had been active. They rinsed all the fingernails to look for trace evidence and swabbed the ligatures for cellular material. With one girl, they were able to find a few sperm clinging to her pubic hair. And with new DNA profiles from three victims, they were able to compare them with Ridgeway thanks to DNA samples they had from 1987, the saliva. And it was a match in all three cases. Wow. They had him. 
On November 30th, 2001, Ridgeway, now 52 years old, was at the Kenworth Truck Factory where he worked as a spray painter, and police arrived to arrest him. Picked him up at work. Yep. Did a perp walk. Yep. Uh, initially, in December of 2001, Ridgeway was indicted on suspicion of murdering four women nearly 20 years earlier after first being identified as a potential suspect. Those four victims in the original indictment were Marsha Chapman, Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines, and Carol Ann Christensen. Three more victims, Wendy Cofield, Deverell Bonner, and Deborah Estes, were added to the indictment after a forensic scientist identified microscopic spray paint spheres as a specific brand and composition of spray paint used at the Kenworth factory during the specific time frame which these victims were killed. So they're uh, getting they got the all the evidence Yeah, they now. got the paint off of him from work. Uh-huh. On November 5th, 2003, Ridgeway made a plea bargain that would save him from the death penalty. Uh, he had to confess and give information regarding the details of the murders and locations of the bodies. He entered a guilty plea to 48 charges of aggravated first-degree murder. And he said in a statement, I killed so many women I have a hard time keeping them straight. And it was here where he admitted to killing most of the victims in his house or truck before disposing of the bodies. He said, most of the time, I didn't even know their names. He further said, most of the time, I killed them the first time I met them, and I do not have a good memory for their faces. I picked prostitutes as my victims because I hate most prostitutes, and I did not want to pay them for sex. He said he mostly picked up sex workers because they were easy to pick up without being noticed. I knew they would be, not be reported missing right away and might never be reported missing. I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without ever getting caught. Wow. On December 18th, uh, 2003, a King County Superior Court judge sentenced Ridgeway to 48 life sentences to be conserved consecutively with no possibility of parole for his crimes. Ridgeway was now posi- was was positively able to be tied to 48, but he confessed that there was more around 70. At his sentencing, some of the victims' families say they hope he'll be killed by his fellow in- inmates in jail. Um, one woman told Ridgeway that he she hoped that he would rot in hell. I'm going to be very vulnerable for a moment, um, and 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 I, and I don't care if people think I'm silly for this, but but I'm going to be. I listened to the victims' families as they came up in court, and they addressed Ridgeway, and it it just it it tore at my heart. Um, well, of course, it did. I, I'm I'm feeling because you're a caring, wonderful human being. Well, I'm feeling it now, but there was one that just ripped me apart to my core, um, and her name was Sarah King when she came to speak up, and uh, uh, I, I'm going to try to get through this. I'm I'm going to be very honest. The first time I saw this, I broke down in tears. Okay. Um, I went and told Chelsea, I said, I can't believe I'm crying over this. And I'm feeling it come now. But um, so, yeah. um, So Sarah's mother, Carol Christensen, who was one of Ridgeway's victims, um, Sarah came up and she told Ridgeway, quote, Never in a million years did I ever think I would be standing up here facing the man that killed my mother. I was only five when my mother died, and when my dad told me she was never coming home, I found out on Mother's Day. Just to the core. Just tears me up to the core. Poor kid. Yeah. So that was the one that just... That just killed me. Well, so I see I, why. I'm very sorry. I got a little, a little, no. a little emotional on that one. That no, one. No, no, that one got to me. Um, Ridgeway did break down and cried as he listened to them. 
Um, and then re- read out a note he prepared earlier in which he references his numerous other victims whose bodies are still missing. I'm very sorry for the ladies that were not found. May they rest in peace. They need a better place than what I gave them. In December of 2010, uh, hikers found a skull in the vicinity of where Marie Malvar's remains had been found in 2003. This was Rebecca Marrero, and on February 18, 2011, Ridgway pled guilty to her murder and received an additional life sentences. All told, Ridgway has been tied to 49 murdered women from 1982 to 1998. Wow. Ridgway claims that somewhere between 20 to 30 women were killed inside of his house. 33 of his victims were teenagers, and there are still women who have never been found uh, that went missing during Ridgway's killing spree, and there's two victims that are still unidentified today. Um, Since his sentencing in 2003, Gary Ridgway has been in solitary confinement. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't let him out in general population. No. No, honestly, what what needs to happen is we need to study him. I I would agree, and I think they are. Um, This is this is another one that just really ripped me apart. I mean, I I almost wished I hadn't researched this one. Um, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Don't be sorry. It's it's, I can tell you, I appreciate the research. (laughs) You know, it's one that needs to be told. Yes. um, Just like the Sylvia Likens one. Yeah. uh, Because this this man this man was a monster. Yeah. Um, I watched his interviews with investigators, and most of the time, he just simply showed no remorse whatsoever, and was just very matter of fact. Other times he cried when faced with his own inner demons. Um, I'm glad I covered this because the victims need to continue to have names. Yes. Um, I hope eventually they're all found because I really hope their family gets closure. Um, I, I Again, I just can't, I can't imagine how horrific it is sitting there every single day wondering if your missing family member was one of Ridgeway's prey. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this 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 one killed me, but it's it's for the victims that this story needs to keep getting yes. told. And that's the end of my story for today. Well, thank you for the research, <laughs> sir. You're very welcome. I'm so sorry that's such a downer. I mean, we 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 generally get on the downers on mine and this one was particularly a downer. I am so sorry. Um, but uh I'm I'm glad I researched it. Um, I never knew the whole story of Gary Ridgway, and I I took a deep dive into this one. Yes, you did. So, um, yeah. So thanks for thanks for being with me on that. Certainly. We need to find something happy to end these things on. We need to figure something out. We need another Mike Malloy, <laughs> or or just find something happy to end these things on because they they generally end so tragic. So. Hopefully, everybody out there can find uh, something happy to go on with, but uh, that'll take us David Mamet. There you go, David Mamet. There you go. There's a good one. Uh, That'll take us to the end of another recording week. Uh, Do remember, please, you can find our website, nerderymurdery.com, where you can find all of our links to our social media and our contact information. Uh, And merch. And merch. You can uh, can always email us, tell us things you want to hear, tell us things you like, tell us things you don't like. You can find our merchandise where you can get your uh, your Nerdery and Murdery logo merchandise. 
you can find our Patreon, where if you wish to donate to our show, please, uh, please and thank you, please do. Please and thank you. You do have some spiffs that go along with your patronage. But if you wish to continue doing this free, we do ask a favor. Please go to iTunes and give us ratings. Uh, give us both uh, ratings and reviews. That really helps us. It helps other people find our content. And it's just something that you can do that only takes it takes less than a minute to do and is very beneficial. Less than a minute. So that's the end of our week. So with that. I have been Zig with your nerdery. And I'm Jeffrey, sadly, with your murdery this week. Cue the music.